We're going to read from Psalm 27 for our scripture reading. Um, That does talk about the rest um, that God offers us as we come into his presence. So hear these words from Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him and his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Well, at this time, I am going to invite Mark up. He is running the Bay Area School of Ministry uh, locally in the Bay Area. And um, he helps train and equip pastors um, for the various, various fields of ministry that they're in as well. And so it'll be a joy to get to hear from you this morning. So I invite you to come on up and share with us. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you uh, As James mentioned, last year I had the opportunity to be at your men's retreat, and so I had such a great time, and I'm so excited to be able to be here with you today. I I thought this would be kind of like a women's retreat, but uh, I'm actually glad to see some men here today as well. I'm sure all of you know that one of the realities of living here in what we call Silicon Valley is the sort of frantic pace of life that we all experience. I even sensed it this morning as I drove down 280 from San Carlos where I live and and was passed by several cars that must have been going at least 90 miles per hour. I mean, it's Sunday morning at 7 o'clock and I'm getting passed by cars going that fast. We are a very busy and rushed people, aren't we? In fact, we tend sometimes to even measure our significance by how packed our calendar is. I was a pastor at Central Peninsula Church in Foster City for 35 years, and oftentimes people would come up to me and they would would say this, I know you're busy, but... And you know what? That always made me feel really important. Now that I'm semi-retired, they don't say that anymore. And I feel less important. And so let's face it, that busyness can serve as a kind of hedge against feeling insignificant. It's like your life cannot possibly be trivial or meaningless if you're in demand every hour of the day. But we pay a price for this, don't we? Dr. Susan Coven is a physician in Massachusetts and she wrote this in the Boston Globe. In the past few years, I have observed an epidemic of sorts, patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize 
The condition is excessive busyness. Wow. And this condition is not something we as followers of Jesus are immune to. A few years back, I found myself paying the price for this kind of lifestyle as a pastor. Uh, I found myself exhausted, tired, out of gas. Like many of you, I started my Christian life with a full tank of passion and love for Christ that overflowed in a heartfelt commitment to serve. And it wasn't forced. It came out of a deep sense of gratitude. I was loved, I was forgiven, I was set free, and so I got busy and I served. Eventually, I even found that somebody was willing to pay me to serve. But that didn't matter, because serving Christ was a pleasure. Now, I don't know exactly when it happened, but little by little, I found myself experiencing many of those symptoms Dr. Coven listed. And I became more aware of the cost of ministry than the pleasure of ministry. I even began to resent and envy people around me who didn't have to carry the kind of load I carried. And worst of all, I felt distant from the Lord himself. And at times, I really wondered, you know, maybe I should quit this. I privately daydreamed of finding something else to do with my life. At other times, maybe I just needed to put my head down and plow ahead, at least that's what I thought. But when your tank is empty, and it's hard to even get the motor running. And so I was in a place where I didn't know what to do. So I would just ask you, what do you do when you're addicted to busyness, but at the same time you're running on empty? What do you do? What do you do when your service becomes more drudgery than delight? Well, I believe Jesus actually answered that question in an event that took place towards the end of his life. And this is a story that's found only in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, turn there, but we'll have the words up on the screen if you don't. This little story in Luke's Gospel is overshadowed by what comes before it and what comes after it. It follows Jesus' well-known story of the Good Samaritan. We all know that story. And it precedes Jesus' teaching on what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, more on all that later. But Jesus and his disciples at this point are on their way to Jerusalem for the last time. And they're passing through the small village of Bethany. And of course, it was in this little village of Bethany that some of Jesus' best friends lived. Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And oftentimes, this home was a refuge for Jesus, uh, the kind of place where Jesus could relax, where he could unwind. You know, we know there were times in Jesus' life where, as he said, he had nowhere to lay his head but the cold, hard ground. But we also know that there were times in Jesus' life where he enjoyed the warm hospitality of good friends. Now when Martha, being the older sister, learned that Jesus and his disciples were passing through Bethany, she invited him over for a meal. And yet this really is the story of a good meal gone bad. I'm sure the food was delicious, but it was seasoned with frustration and resentment. So listen as I read, starting in Luke chapter 10, 
verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, I'm sure that most of you know that it's no small task to have people over for dinner especially someone as important to you as Jesus was to these two sisters. And so think about it. If you add the 12 disciples and you add Lazarus to the mix, you have 16 people to serve. And that's, that's enough to make Martha Stewart cringe, right? Now, it's clear as we look at these two women that they responded to this challenge very differently. Martha is a frenzy of activity. After planning and shopping, it appears like perhaps this was one of those meals where nothing was working. Maybe she couldn't get the fire just right. Maybe she didn't put enough leaven in the bread. Maybe the vegetables got cold while the meat was taking forever to cook. And the worst thing about it was her sister was not lifting a finger. I can imagine Martha calling from the kitchen for her sister to come in and give her a hand. When nothing happened, Martha stomps into the living room only to find her sister serenely sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his words. And we don't know exactly what Mary was thinking, but somehow the presence of Jesus in her home had captured her attention so completely that at that moment, serving seemed secondary. Now at this point, Martha boiled over, as any of us perhaps would, but she didn't scold her sister. Notice she scolded Jesus. Master, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving? Tell her to give me a hand. I'm sure Martha felt this was a very reasonable request to make. I mean, it seems like it to me. I would expect Jesus to send Mary scurrying into the kitchen to do her part. It's only fair, right? I mean, didn't, didn't Jesus say, the greatest among you shall be your what? Your servant. But he surprises us. And he speaks not to, to Mary, but he speaks to Martha. And he responds to her kind of like a parent might respond to a fretting child. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, you don't have to be a scholar to see that Mary gets the, the best grade here, right? Martha gets the low one. I don't know about you, but I really think about that. That kind of bothers me. Does it bother you at all? I mean, I would expect Martha to get at least a pat on the back and Mary to get a kick in the pants. Because deep down, perhaps like many of you, I really connect with the Marthas of this world. Martha is a realist. Martha knows 
what needs to get done. She doesn't fool around. She, she calls things as she sees them. In fact, uh, perhaps you remember the story where Jesus showed up four days late to her brother's funeral. When he finally arrived, uh, they took Jesus out to the cemetery and he stood in front of the tomb and then he asked that the stone be rolled away. Remember what Martha said? She said, she's still grieving, of course, and she says to Jesus, Master, you'd better not do that. He's been dead four days and by now he stinks. That's not exactly the most appropriate thing to say, but it's pretty realistic. And that's the kind of woman Martha was. She was realistic to know that if you're going to feed 16 people, somebody better roll up their sleeves. It doesn't happen sitting down. I mean, let's face it, if it were not for the Marthas of this world, nothing would ever get done. Few businesses would make a profit. Few children would get bathed and ready for bed at night. Few churches would actually grow. I have a deep appreciation for the Marthas in our churches. They work the sound booth, they serve in the nursery, they set up the chairs, they lead the small groups, they serve. Jesus does not fault us for that. Service is a good thing. In fact, in the passage, just prior to this one, Jesus tells that story of the Good Samaritan. What's that about? It's about a guy who served. He saw a need and he did what he could do to meet that need. In doing so, according to Jesus, he exemplified what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It seems to me it's the Marthas of this world, not the Marys, who are good neighbors. When they see people weary, in need of rest, in need of a, of a meal, they're the ones who open their home, they're the ones who extend a hand, they're the ones who meet that need. That's the kind of woman Martha was And I don't think Jesus faults her or anyone else for that. So, what's the problem? The problem is not our service. The problem is the spirit of our service. Our spirit can spoil our service. And as I look at this story, I see that it can really happen in a number of ways. So think about it. First of all, it can spoil it for us, for us. Notice Jesus describes Martha as worried and bothered about so many things. Does that sound like you? Perhaps Martha felt like she had to prepare a five-course feast and that caused her to be anxious and irritable. Many of you know exactly what this feels like. In one week, Perhaps you have kids who need help with their homework. You have parents who need help in their yard. You have a demanding job. You have a church that expects you not just to show up here on Sunday morning, but to serve. And it's easy to feel like you have to do it all and you have to do it well. In fact, Martha types like to say, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Sounds good. I mean, it might motivate us, but it also might kill us. When I was in seminary years ago, I was married. I had a child. I was working nearly 20 hours a week. I carried a full academic load. On top of all of that, I felt like anything less than an A was a moral failure. And if you'd have asked me why, you know what I would have said? Well, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. 
problem was, I was enjoying myself. Like Martha, I was worried and bothered about so many things. And so my spirit spoiled my service for me. Now, the spirit of our service also affects those around us. I mean, Martha's spirit affected Mary. I mean, she doesn't quietly come into the room and maybe whisper in Mary's ear, hey, Mary, could you, could you find a moment just to come in and help me in the kitchen? No, she makes a grandstand play. And she announces to everyone within earshot, including Jesus, that her sister is a slug. Think of how Mary felt about that. Think of how the disciples felt watching it as guests in that home. Have you ever gone to a home as a guest? And as soon as you walked in the house, you just felt the tension? You're not sure what, but, but something was going on there that was thicker than the gravy on the table. The meal may be wonderful, but man, you can't wait to get out of there. That's how the disciples felt. So the spirit of our service affects the people around us. Now finally, our spirit can at least temporarily spoil our relationship with the Lord himself. I mean, in Martha's mind, think about it, this was gonna be a night to remember. God's son would be at her table. But she ends up not just angry at her sister, but angry at the Lord himself. Lord, don't you care? That's an accusation. She even tells him what to do about it. If you've ever blown up at someone that you care deeply about, you know exactly what Martha was feeling. I mean, most of us, you know, we look forward to to being with people we love on special occasions. I mean, imagine you're out for dinner uh, and somehow the conversation turns in the wrong direction. We've all been there. Before you know it, you shoot a word across the table that cuts that person like a sharp knife. And that's, that's what Martha did. And that's what happens when we serve with the wrong spirit. And sometimes the one on the other side of the table is the Lord himself. So it wasn't Martha's service that ruined the evening. It was the spirit of her service. But I love this because Jesus not only diagnoses the problem, he also offers a solution. He says that Mary chose the one thing necessary, the good part, which can't be taken away from her. So I think it's important we ask the question, well, what did Mary choose? What did Mary choose? Well, we look at this and we see that Mary chose to sit at his feet and listen to Jesus' word. Now, I don't think that's a plea for us to serve less and sit around more. I think Jesus isn't telling us to watch more TV or take a longer vacation. What Mary chose to do was place herself in a position where the Lord could minister to her. So while Martha started with trying to do something for Jesus, Mary started by trying to receive something from Jesus. Before Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he he said there's something which comes before loving your neighbor. Do you remember what it was? See, loving your neighbor is the second commandment. What's the first commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the foundation of that love relationship with God that allows me to love my neighbor. That's why Jesus gave us those commands in precisely that order. 
if we get them turned around, we really won't be able to love our neighbor as we should. And if you take a pitcher of water and begin pouring it out, obviously sooner or later it's going to run dry. It's going to be empty. If you hold that pitcher of water under a faucet, soon it's going to fill up. And not only will it fill up, but it will begin to overflow. And if we give ourselves to service of neighbor first, we will soon be an empty pitcher. But if we give ourselves first to cultivating a love relationship with Jesus, where we let him fill us, where we let him minister to us, then our service will have staying power and our spirit will be right. Maybe that's what Jesus means when he says, what Mary chose won't be taken away from her. I think what he's saying is, listen, what Mary chose is a different kind of meal. It's a meal that will last. So what does it look like? I think it's worth asking the question, how do we allow the Lord to serve us? How do we allow the Lord to minister to us, to fill us? Now, some people, of course, say, well, this is all about, this story is all about knowing the word, the word of God. That's what, that's what Mary is doing, right? She's listening to the word of Jesus. And there's no question that God's word is one of those things that, that replenishes us. But I believe this is more about, it's, it's, it's more than just about knowing the word. Because remember in the previous two story of the Good Samaritan? Remember, the, remember in that story, it was the two guys who knew the word the best, the priest and the Levite, remember? Who passed the hurting man upon the road. Um, the, the guys who knew the word of God the best failed to do the right thing. So it's not just about knowing the word, it's digesting the word. And it's letting the word minister to our hearts. That's different. Another way we allow the Lord to serve us, I believe, is through prayer. So it's no mistake that Jesus immediately follows this story, or that Luke does, I should say, as he writes this gospel. Luke immediately follows this story with Jesus' instruction to his disciples on how to pray. He teaches them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I believe with all my heart that Luke sandwiched this little story of Mary and Martha between the story of the Good Samaritan and the Lord's Prayer on purpose. He wanted us to know that before we can be a Good Samaritan, we have to sit at his feet. And sitting at his feet and listening to his word is not just about knowing the Bible, but it's also about prayer. Prayer is one of those ways that we allow the Lord Jesus to minister to us. I wonder if that surprises you. It, it surprised me. For a long time, I saw prayer as another form of service, right? Something I did for God, something I did for my neighbor. But more and more, I've come to view prayer first and foremost as a way of letting him minister to me, of letting him serve me. Uh, maybe that's why Jesus taught us to, to pray beginning with these words, our Father. I mean, to say that and to believe that is to let God minister to our hearts. It's to come into his presence and before you do anything else to remember that because of Christ, you come to one you can call Father. You come to one who takes pleasure in you as his beloved child. 
my daughter coaches her, her two sons' soccer team. And, you know, I, I go out now as the, the grandfather and my wife with me, and we go watch these guys play soccer. They're, they're eight and six years old, I think it is. And, and, and these kids get on the field, you know, and, 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 and all they want to do is chase the ball around. We call it bunch ball, right? It's all they want to do. And that's no way to play soccer, right? We know. And so my daughter, Kim, she knows the importance of, of, of every once in a while, you got to sit the boys down and you got to just talk with them and you got to connect with them and you got to give them, you know, very short, because the attention span's very short, but you got to give them little instructions, you know, on, on what to do. You got to pour into them. If she doesn't do that, they're going to be just, they're going to be a mess on Saturday morning. So they have to hear from her before they can play for her. And one of the ways we hear from Jesus is by sitting at his feet in a spirit of prayer and letting him minister to our hearts. Mary was practicing what I would call the discipline of replenishment. Do you practice the discipline of replenishment? I remember uh, taking a freshman economics course and we learned about the law of supply and demand, right? For years, economists, I learned, focused on the demand side. But as far as I understand, and I'm not, a very, I'm not an economist, so don't, don't hold me to this, but I, I've heard in recent years there's been a more focus on supply-side economics. And the idea is increasing the supply of goods will equal growth. I don't know if that's true or not, but trust me on this. I think this applies to our spiritual lives as well as the economy. We have things in our lives we call demands, things that drain us, things that empty us. And most of us spend a lot of our time trying to manage our demands and avoiding overcommitment. And that's why we keep our schedules on our smartphones. We're managing the demand side of our life, right? But what about the supply side? How carefully do you manage the supply side of your life? The supply side are the things that fill your soul. They fill your soul. I think we need to spend as much time managing the supply side of our lives as we do the demand side of our lives. It's helped me to think of this in three categories. First, who are the supply side people in my life? Who are the supply side people? You know, you meet with certain people and you walk away and you feel absolutely drained, right? And then there are other people you meet with and you walk away and you feel like, man, I'm energized, I'm encouraged, I'm filled. Well, you, you gotta lock some of those people into your life. And then, and then there are what I would call supply-side activities in your life. Again, some activities drain your soul. And yet there are other things that you do that, that, that fill you up. I live in a beautiful area where there are some awesome places to walk. And some of my best times of prayer just come when I take a, an hour-long walk. And whenever I come back and I have a new lease on life, it's a supply-side activity in my life. It's replenishing my soul. And then there are supply-side places in your life. You have, you have a place in your life and you go there and just immediately your shoulders relax and you just feel like, ah, I love this place. This is my happy place, right? It's like a holy place for you. 
Maybe it's a place that you go to meet with God for an extended time, a place where you remember times that he ministered to your heart and you say, this is my place. It fills my soul. The thing is, no one can manage the supply side in your life but you. It requires self-leadership. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, his final address to these elders. He looked them in the eyes and he said, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of God. Did you get that? Keep watch over yourselves. And that's what we're talking about here. Keep watch over your own soul. If you keep watch over the flock, but not yourselves, you're gonna be like Martha and you won't have anything to give. So practice the discipline of replenishment. There's a little story in Letty Kalman's book, Springs in the Valley, where she tells of, uh, of a group of Westerners who had come to Africa. And the tribesmen were, were, were hired to carry their baggage as they traveled. And the first day, the, the Westerners traveled in typical Western style, too far and too fast. The next morning, the tribesmen just sat and they refused to get up and go forward. And there was some discussion about this and finally they gave the reason to the Westerners and this was their reason. They said, we have to wait for our souls to catch up with our bodies. I like that. I think those Africans understood the law of supply and demand. <laughs> I noticed that um, Steve Zeisler is speaking at your men's retreat this weekend, and that brought back to me a wonderful memory. Um, probably 42, 43 years ago, uh, I was in scribe school at PBC, and I was listening to one of uh, Steve's first sermons that he ever gave there. And it was a sermon that he did that he compared the life of King David with his son, King Solomon. Remember how God came to Solomon in a dream and essentially said, hey, whatever you want, let me know and I'll give it to you. Blank check, Solomon. What do you want from me? I'll give it to you. And remember what Solomon asked for? He said, I want to have wisdom to rule like my father. Remember, God was pleased with that request because he could have asked for riches and wealth and honor. And so God said, listen, because you didn't ask for riches and wealth and honor, but you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you both. I'm going to give you wisdom and riches and wealth and honor. But David, David was different. In fact, in Psalm 27, which we read earlier, David speaks of the one thing he asked for. Remember what David said? He said, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. See, the one thing David wanted was to just dwell in the Lord's presence, to behold his beauty. I believe Solomon asked for a good thing, but David asked for the best thing. David chose the one thing that would last. David chose what Mary chose. You know, sometime in your life, you may have received an invitation that meant a great deal to you. I don't know, it might have been an invitation to a party, to join a team, to attend a school, to join a group. Whatever it was, you felt honored and blessed to be invited, and you wouldn't miss that for the world. I think it's possible to hear this story 
as a kind of, you know, slap your hand, you need to pray more, you need to read your Bible more. But I don't want you to see it in that way. I want you to see this as an invitation. An invitation from the Lord Jesus himself to just sit at his feet and to let him minister to you, to to sit under his ministry. It's an invitation to eat with him. In fact, he he talks about that in Revelation chapter three. He said, I'm knocking at the door. All you gotta do is open it and I will come in and I will what? I will eat with you. I will eat with you and you with me. And folks, that's a meal that will last forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the invitation that you give to each one of us to come to you and sit at your feet and let you minister to us. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for how many times we, we neglect that, for how often we move towards doing things, even serving others, even doing good things, when in fact, Lord, we need to be in your presence. We need to be filled by you first. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have the very best waiting for us, the best meal possible, the one that can't be taken away. Let us choose that, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, for a benediction today, I'd um, like to uh, offer you this benediction that comes out of one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. He said, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and forever. Amen.